What's up, you guys out there on internet land, either watching me on YouTube or listening to me on Spotify, iTunes, Google, whatever Google's thing is, SoundCloud, where I host my podcast. What's up, you guys? I'm pumped about this episode because I'm doing another... Um, it's the, oh man, this camera's going to go all over the place, so I apologize. Uh, another compilation video of the topic of binge eating. So, if you guys have been following my career through this podcast and have listened for at least a year... Uh, you'll know that I battled with some harsh binge eating behaviors, um, which I documented quite a bit um, on my podcasts, on my social media posts and things like that. And I wanted to bring all of my episodes that I've spoken on the topic because, you know, I elaborated on a lot of different things over the years and also you know share my own struggle and I think when people you know find someone else that's dealing with the same shit it's almost I wouldn't say comforting but just gives you validation to feel that way and I think a lot of times when people deal with you know emotional eating binge eating um any kind of weird borderline psychological issue when it comes to food and they meet somebody else that's going through the same thing, it kind of leaves the pressure off their shoulders just enough where they can continue with their life. Whereas a lot of times when you're dealing with binge eating or emotional eating or whatever it is, you feel very alone. You feel that you have no control and that's probably the best way to describe it when I was dealing with binge eating was I had no control and I'll go into detail in these episodes that I brought together what a typical binge for me was and it all stemmed from me getting into the fitness industry and that's kind of the dark side of fitness is that you know a lot of the fitness marketing and the images, the videos you see online that's supposed to inspire you tends to actually make things a lot worse. So over the course of five years of my podcasts, I've talked about the subject. I added those episodes into this long, well-orchestrated episode along with one interview that I did with Chris Scott Dixon. If you don't know who Krista Scott Dixon is, she is a heavy hitter when it comes to the nutrition world, and she works for Precision Nutrition, which is the largest nutrition coaching company in the world. And Krista is like a nutritional ninja. Like, I absolutely adore her. She is so freaking good at what she does. I've had her on my podcast multiple times, but this one episode that... I'm putting into this one 
is I believe the second time I interviewed her and I asked her to utilize me as a case study. So for like the first 20 minutes of the episode, like it's a full hour, um, we kind of, you know, shoot the shit, see what's going on, what's new, what she's working on, things like that. And then I got her to basically, you know, coach me if I was one of her clients and help me through my binge eating uh, tendencies. And I was just like floored. I was, what's the word I'm looking for? Flabbergasted. Um, I think bonus points for me for using that word in a sentence. Um, By the level of detail she went in, the questions that she asked me, and I believe the podcast, that episode in particular got so, so um, popular within the PN community that they started using it for um, their like Facebook group and a lot of coaches found it super helpful. So I'm very excited to bring back that episode. And this is the exact reason why I'm doing all these compilation videos and episodes together because, you know, Maybe you just started listening to my podcast 30 days ago and you have no idea who Krista Scott Dixon is. And now I'm going to open this whole world to you that never existed. So I'm super excited to bring this episode together. So without further ado, here is a combination of all my episodes that I spoke about binge eating. Hope you enjoy Here we go. Today, what I really want to talk about is this whole idea of binge behaviors and an episode that I recorded with Krista that's going to be coming out soon uh, talks about this a lot and it gets really deep because I asked her to use me as a case study because for you the listener who doesn't know me personally um, I have been dealing with binge behavior since honestly high school And it's really tough when you're a training coach that's helping others overcome their own struggle with weight loss when you yourself, the coach, is actually struggling too. But at the same time, I feel like I have an advantage to help people because I've been in their shoes. Now, I've probably talked about this, you know, with numerous guests on my shows about coaches who you know, went through a struggle like weight loss, have almost the advantage when it comes to training someone in the general population. Because most of the time, a lot of trainers that are in this industry, they played high level sports, they've been fit their whole lives. And then they get a client in front of them that's not an athlete that they can't relate to. And they have to figure out how to communicate the best way to make this person successful in weight loss. Now, I'm not saying that these coaches are bad. A lot of them that I know that I look up to have been fit their whole lives and they just do amazing when it comes to general population with weight loss. So it's not a blanket statement. It's just saying that sometimes a coach who's been through a struggle, just like their client, has the advantage. Now, when it comes to binge behavior, I'm going to give you a little backstory of what I've been going through. I don't want to give the whole spiel of it because you're going to listen to it with Krista. Essentially, um, I played victim to the whole idea of cheat days. Now, you've probably read so many different articles and 
even read books about this so-called cheat day and basically how it's structured is you eat super clean all week and one day during the week you just go for it you eat whatever you can whatever you can consume to you know make it worthwhile and that's supposed to be the magic pill or magic whatever you want to call it to substantial like weight loss and beat your cravings and whatever else you can think of that people struggle with weight loss. But in reality, it is very, very flawed. And I honestly think that's one of the reasons why today I still struggle with it. This whole idea of restriction, right? It all comes down to restriction. And clients do this all the time. They get into their heads that, hey, I'm going to do this diet. I'm going to do this cleanse. I'm going to do this detox. You've probably heard me say those three things over and over and over again on this podcast. And it's important because a lot of times it always happens. Clients will not think of it any differently other than I need to get healthy I can either do a diet, I can either do a cleanse, I can either do a detox to jumpstart. That's the word also you also hear from clients is I'm going to jumpstart my nutrition. I'm going to jumpstart my health. It doesn't work. And no matter how much you educate them on why detoxes and cleanses and all that bullshit is bad for them, they're still going to do it. And again, I've said this a bunch of times on my show Um, I've looked the other way when they talk about this because this, this is crucial. They look at these diets and quick fixes as a, like an escape. They look at it as an escape to fix all their issues and it's marketed so well that, oh, in 30 days, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel lighter. You're going to lose this. You're going to lose that. Hell, like if I was a regular person, and I saw that I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. But the issue is it doesn't teach you any life skills for long term success. And again, you can tell your clients everything, everything, you know, why their choice is the wrong one. They're not going to listen to you because they've already made up your mind. So what I've been doing lately is I go, sure. We can totally do this cleanse after the 14 days or however long it is. Let's plan what we're going to do after. And then they look at this a little differently. They're like, oh, okay, well, there can be like a two part of my, you know, cleanse or diet. I look at it as a learning opportunity. I almost want someone to fail on a diet on purpose So then when you implement your portion of the second phase of the cleanse, they will be successful because a lot of times if you don't pay attention to what your clients are doing outside the hours you see them in person, it's crucial. So it's really, really important that you come up with a game plan, not only as a trainer, but also if you are a regular person dealing with weight loss struggle. A lot of times there's a lot of diets that have 
you know, like a window of X amount of days. Don't just plan for the 30 days or whatever, how long it is. Plan after. Create a plan that will put you back to normal eating. So now the other thing with these diets and cleanses, they lead to some pretty bad behaviors. And you as a coach or you as a person interested in weight loss, you've probably done numerous diets. They all worked during the time you were doing them, but after you're done, you're back to square one. And you can develop so many different, you know, I want to say eating disorders, not eating disorders, but disordered eating habits. And my example of this whole binge thing is, you know, it's not a diet per se, but eat super squeaky clean all week and binge on one day, you could define that as a restrictive diet. Anytime you restrict someone, the more you want to break it. Like, you can have the greatest willpower in the world, but that doesn't mean shit when it comes to food. You see this a lot in the bodybuilding world. How many times have you heard uh, about people prepping for a show and they step on stage or super pumped to show off what they did to their body and then they all go out to whatever restaurant and down food that could feed like a whole village in Africa for like a week. It happens all the time. And it just it doesn't it doesn't work. Anytime you're restrictive, it just screws up not only mentally but also physically. And with my experience of this whole like binge behavior, you go into this weird like phase of your life where everything revolves around food. Like it can get really messed up. Like when I would have my binge day, I would actually plan it. Like I would actually throughout the week, whatever craving I had, I would write it down on a grocery list of foods that I was going to buy to binge on. And I thought that was normal. Like if you told that to any other person that's not in the fitness industry, it's a regular person on the street, they'd be like, dude, you got some issues, right? Like let's think about that for a second. If you were just talking to somebody and they're like, oh, so what are you going to do this weekend? Well, I'm going to go to Pizza Hut to grab a pizza. I'm going to go to the liquor store and grab a six pack of beer. And then I'm going to go to the Cheesecake Factory and get these three slices. And then I'm going to go to the grocery store and get X, Y, and Z and just sit down and eat it all. That's pretty messed up. And the sad thing is that, you know, I did it and I thought that was normal because I'm in the fitness industry and cheat days are the thing to do and that's how you're supposed to do it like (laughs) binge behavior can go so far to a point where you can't even realize that you're in it and I feel very very fortunate that I knew my behavior wasn't actually normal and this goes to so many other things in the nutrition world where you know dieting is just normal now Like this whole idea of restricting yourself to lose weight is normal. 
And that, yes, I know calorie deficits do work, but not to the point where you're moody and depressed and all you think about is the food that you can't eat. Like that's just a little, little too much. So my advice for anyone who is struggling with binge behavior is to talk to somebody like you'd be surprised how good it could feel just to just to open up and don't feel embarrassed that you're dealing with something like that. And, you know, if you're a person who has a trainer and you're dealing with emotional eating, binge eating, like whatever it could be, just talk to them. And I know it's kind of tough because you might feel embarrassed. You might be like, oh, they're going to judge me. They're not going to judge you. And if they do, they're probably not a really good trainer to be with in the first place. So when I was speaking with Krista, I knew where she was going to head. Like I, I, I would consider myself someone who has a pretty good self-awareness of who I am and what I do. But she asked me so many questions not even so many a handful of questions that I knew she was going to ask but in a way that made me think so much differently and I connected so many different dots in my life to why and how and how I got into this whole binge cycle now imagine if you are feeling bottled up with an issue like this and you don't speak to anybody it's never going to get fixed you know, sometimes I, I almost came to this conclusion, like maybe I'm never going to overcome binge eating. Like I'm never going to have a year without doing it at least once. And that's OK. But I know why I know why I do it. So imagine if you were able to speak to someone, it, it doesn't even have to be someone who has experience. But the fact that you're just saying it, sometimes you get something, you know, like two weeks later down the road, something clicks in. You're like, you know what? That's probably why. Or you just get more clarity just to speak to somebody. And the fact that I spoke to Krista about it, you know, like if you listen to the episode at the very end, she says, you know, email me back or message me back in two weeks because something might have clicked, you know. And in the interview, I talk about how in high school, when I was super depressed about being overweight, I listened to music. And I said, I listened to a lot of rap and punk rock, and I, th- I can't remember something else. So the big one is I was listening to a lot of Linkin Park. Okay, Th- this is what clicked for me. Recently, if you've been following the news and know who Chester Bennington is, he's the lead, lead singer of Linkin Park. When I heard that he committed suicide, it hit me really, really hard. And this is the first time I ever spoke about this. Suicide is really, really tough on me because in high school, I had a really, really close friend of mine that committed suicide. And I, I honestly, I, I never knew, like, because I've never lost somebody close to me. And this was the first time I ever experienced it. And it really, really hit me hard. So I know the feeling to lose someone close to you. And, you know, I got over it, whatever. Um, And then I heard this whole thing about Chester taking his own life. 
And I didn't know him personally, but I had the exact same feeling of losing one of my best friends in high school. And I thought that was so strange because I'm like, I don't I've never spoken to Chester. I've never met him, never shook his hand. I never had a conversation with him. But for some reason, I felt the exact same way as I did with my friend from high school. So after this interview with Krista, you know, a couple of days after it finally clicked in. During the times when I was in high school depressed about being overweight, I would listen to different bands and different rappers, and the big one was always Linkin Park. And I think I have some sort of emotional attachment to, you know, feeling depressed and listening, you know, putting that CD in and listening to the lyrics and listening to the music helped me get past my depression of being overweight. And I think that's why when I heard when Chester committed suicide, it was such a blow. And I felt down like it, it, it just clicked. I figured that out. And I still have to go message Krista because I'm like, holy shit, like you are amazing at coaching people like she could be a psychologist, honestly. But that was just from talking to somebody. Right. Like she's definitely really experienced. And I had a huge kind of like a revelation about why I was so emotionally attached to this singer that I've never met. And it was actually directly related to my weight when I was younger. So imagine if you just spoke to somebody that actually had experience with dealing with weight loss and, you know, going through what you're going through, you might be surprised how much better you can feel having clarity over your life. So my big thing and takeaway for all of you trainers and people that are interested in weight loss, don't feel like you can't talk to anybody. I don't know it's easier said than done, but reach out. You'd be surprised if any of you are dealing with body image eating disorders, anything that comes to nutrition and weight loss, email me. Email me, lay it out on me like I don't care. I will email you back. I'm not going to see it come into my inbox and be like, I will I'll deal with this later. You'd be surprised how good it's going to feel when you know, I email you back and you're like, holy shit, this person cares. The fact that you know someone cares about what you're going through is one of the biggest steps to recovery and success. So if at all you're thinking about it, go for it. Email me at rafal at empowerhp.ca. That's R-A-F-A-L at empowerhp.ca. And I guarantee I'm going to email you back within 24 hours. If you are still unsure, that's okay. Again, you can't force these things. And I'm going to say it right now. I've been dealing with this binge crap for years. And it's only been the last year where I really focused on trying to get over it. And it's only been the last couple months where I actually have tried to do something. Because before, I honestly thought I had no issues. And when I figured out that it wasn't a good idea to be binging on crap foods all the time, 
I didn't do anything about it. So maybe you're not ready right uh, at this moment. So that's okay. But I'm always going to be here. And for all you coaches out there listening, know that coming from a person that has gone through a weight loss struggle, know that most likely your clients are going through something. And it's just they haven't told you. I would just say just expect something. Because I remember having one situation with a client where they actually approached me, took me into an office, and just started bawling, crying, and I'm like, okay, what's wrong? And they told me that they were an emotional eater. And I was like, holy shit, this is the first time that a client did this. So all you can do, because our profession gets into way too many things that we're not qualified for. So the first thing I told her was the fact that you're telling me right now about this issue is a huge success and win for you. And the fact that I said that to her, she she like stopped crying instantly. She was shocked that I said something like that because I think every human being thinks the worst situation if they're actually going to be vulnerable and true to themselves. And that's not the case. Just letting your clients know that you're there for them is going to make them feel so much closer to you. And in the long game, you're just going to win. Welcome back, you guys, for another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the lovely Krista Scott-Dixon. Say hello. Hey there. Uh, So to break the ice for the audience, I always ask my guests now, what do you got planned for the weekend? What do I have planned for the weekend? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, I've been starting to do long distance bike rides. Um, I don't have a road bike or anything. I actually have a mountain bike, which in Toronto you really need, because if you've ever seen the roads in Toronto, you're like, yeah, that's mountain bike territory. But yeah, I've been starting to do, um, long distance cycles, just taking a Sunday and going as far as I feel like going. And then I finish, this is ritualistic, with barbecue. I have to find a barbecue restaurant at the end of this route and crush some brisket. So that's what I'm planning for this weekend. That's awesome. I used to cycle quite a bit and like me, friends or clients will always have to go out to like a coffee shop or some sort of restaurant just to like get our calories back in us because after we, we would go up towards like 100 kilometers. So you're like you know, six hours deep of just cycling. And you're like, yeah, I want a burger real bad. Oh yeah, totally. Well, once you pass that threshold of a multi-hour cycle, um, the carbs seem extremely attractive at the end. (laughs) Yeah. Which is great because now like the next question I actually want to get into, we were kind of chatting back and forth on Facebook is this whole binge behavior and binge eating. And I've been actually kind of talking about this for the last couple episodes on my show. And I think you'd be awesome to kind of tackle this because you're like a guru when it comes to this stuff (laughs) and I was like just to start off maybe tell the audience what the difference between binge eating disorder is and binge behavior uh you know that's a great question and there's obviously kind of a continuum right like binge eating disorder is a clinically defined phenomenon um and you know so anything clinically defined tends to be the more serious end of the spectrum, right? So anyone who's presenting at like a disordered eating clinic is pretty deep into it. So, um, so, so, you know, binging behavior is kind of like partially along the continuum, but basically 
there's a couple different ways to think about it. One, one is what they call objective binges, which is like you, um, eat more than anyone would objectively consider sane, like three pizzas and 10 bags of cookies and whatever. Right. So you eat an amount of food that is reasonably considered extremely excessive. And then you can have a subjective binge, which is like you maybe eat a normal amount of food or maybe even a small meal or a few grapes or something, but the feeling is of having lost control. And so what defines binge eating really is this feeling of losing control, this feeling of like, I am eating and I can't stop. And it's something that I feel compelled to do. And, um, you know, if it moves into the clinical end of things, I would say what defines a clinical phenomenon is it's really significantly disrupting your life and your health and your relationships and kind of like everything that's going on for you. Whereas you can have binge behavior, just like you could be like a, you know, a problem drinker and still be pretty functional in most of your life. So, but, but, the feeling of being compelled and of losing control, that's really the big factor, regardless of what you eat or how much you eat, I would say. Where do you think like binge behavior kind of stems from? Like, is there a common theme from the people you've seen and coached over the years? Or is there different situations that kind of leads to that behavior? Um, I mean, the common theme underlying it is that it's a form of self-medication. Well, actually, no, that's not, let me divide it into two. One is a form of self-medication, right? It's an extremely effective emotional painkiller <laughs> for a brief period of time. The second main reason is the body is aggressively trying to get itself back into energy balance. And those two things can go together, right? So you can be someone who has a history of chronic dieting um, and there's all these emotional associations with food. And so when you binge, it's both uh, like a physiological experience as well as an emotional experience. Then often you see things like uh, athletes who cut weight for competition end up binge eating. And sometimes that has less of an emotional component to it and more of a physiological component to it. So there is kind of crossover, but I would say that those are the two um, main commonalities. And so what underlies either of those physiologically, generally, there tends to have been some kind of pattern of energy restriction. In plain English, that means you've probably gone on a diet or you've probably tried to restrict food intake or, um, a kind of nutrient, typically carb intake. So we often see carb binges in people that are going low carb. So generally what comes before a binge is restriction for the most part. Um, and then also for people for whom there's that emotional component, what precedes the binge earlier in someone's history is trauma, right? And then what precipitates a binge is usually stress or anxiety or discomfort or distress or some kind of emotional state that someone just doesn't want to experience. And a lot of the time, they're not even really aware of it. They're not having that conscious thought process of, oh, I feel bad. I want to eat and feel better. A lot of the time, it's just the compulsion. You know, they're like, I got to get out of here and crush this bag of cookies. Like, that's the feeling. So, um, you know, I don't want to say it's inevitable that nutrient restriction leads to binge eating. But if you talk to people, um, typically there was some kind of diet or I don't know, fasting or, or restriction of some kind before the very first binge. Uh, I think you said it right, like right off the bat, it was like, if anytime somebody puts themselves into restriction, 
it just like recipe for disaster because hey training clients over the years at least i would say 99.9 percent of them all tried some sort of diet that made them feel like complete shit and then want to like devour everything in sight yeah and i remember chatting with one woman that came into our gym that was seeing our Cairo, and she did the bernstein diet i think five times and i was oh, like yeah i was like so how 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 did it work out for you she's like well obviously not very well i'm still fat i'm like oh straight to the point and i'm like that's like one of the worst examples to like restrict yourself completely because i think they put you on like an 800 calorie diet and then you get shot up with ivs to make sure you're still functioning as a human and of course after that you want to eat everything in front of you yeah. And I mean, I think it's worth mentioning for people listening, people who have binge issues tend to feel like it's a failure of willpower, but underlying the physiological binge uh, experience is there are evolutionary mechanisms that are designed for preventing starvation and they're way stronger than you. Like, and I mean like your conscious you, um, they are designed to keep you alive. So at some point they will overwhelm the strongest will, the strongest motivation, the best plan, whatever you do, unless you're like locked in solitary confinement or something like that. But the research is pretty clear that we have these, uh, what are called homeostatic mechanisms. So, so physiological mechanisms that are designed to keep things kind of on an even keel, they will kick in. And so a week of dieting will earn you a weekend binge, right? Like it's just as simple as that. And, or, I mean, whatever the time scale is, uh, again, with fighters, you see this a lot, like they're cutting weight, cutting weight, cutting weight, often for several weeks, fight happens, they go out and just crush buffets for days. Like I've seen fighters gain up to 30, 40 pounds after a fight. Like you just have to, if you imagine the massive amount of energy intake that has to happen, no, not all of it is fat, some of it's water, but still like the amount of eating that has to occur. And the other thing about binging too, is you often engage in weird behavior. Like uh, one of the fighters said to me, I don't know what's happening. I'm driving around in my car at like three in the morning looking for cashews. I just have to find somewhere that sells giant bags of cashews. Like just you, so you often get like weird attachments to particular foods, or you just find yourself doing strange, almost like ritualized behaviors. Uh, so that's sometimes part of it too. You, you often have perhaps a particular physical path, like you go to a particular place or you do it in a certain place, or there's like a certain sequence. Um, I talked to a bodybuilder once who would do this thing on her refeed day where she would have like a stick of butter and a bowl of brown sugar and like a scoop of peanut butter. And she would do this like circuit around her kitchen from counter to counter to counter and like dip the butter in the sugar and then like gnaw at it and then scoop the peanut butter and eat it. And this would continue for, I don't know, however long it would take you to eat a jar of peanut butter. Like it's just, you know, so you get into these kind of weird, bizarre, almost ritualistic behaviors. Um, and it's all part of the phenomenon. Man, I cannot imagine doing something like that. Like, that's that's a lot of cal. I don't even think that's like a refi date. I think that's like a, that's a full on binge day. Well, exactly right. Like, that's why I don't really like the whole bodybuilding and figure competition shows. Like, I used to train a couple women training for them, and it's never ended in a good way. Like, typical scenario is woman sees other women doing it in the gym. They're like, oh, I can do that too because then my body's gonna look better. And then they get through the whole process. And I remember, I can't remember if I told it 
told this story on this show, but I had one woman, she was like four weeks out from her show and we started our session and then she just started crying. I'm like, what, what's wrong? She's like, my calves are not defined enough. I'm like, are you serious? Like, like there's so many like mental and psychological things that happen when you're trying to diet that hard. And almost all of the women that I've trained doing these shows, they almost like just disappear from the gym for, uh, for like at least a month and you find out they've just been eating everything in sight and they've gained like 20 pounds and they need to do their next show to get back on track. And I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> yeah. And you've put your finger on something really important too, which is the sort of cyclical nature of it. Right. And so people engage in the dysfunctional behavior and by which I mean the dieting and the prepping and all that kind of stuff. And then of course their body is like, hell no, <laughs> you're dying right now. You need to get some calories in you. Or, you know, you're, you have zero hormones. You're infertile. I'm dropping your estrogen and your progesterone and all that. Um, and then, of course, they, they go off the rails. And But then they think, oh, to, to fix this, I need another diet. I need another plan. I need more rules, which is actually what precipitated the problem in the first place, right? So it's like, this is one of the rare cases where people are seeking the problem as the solution, right? So they <laughs> drive themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into dysfunction. And you're right. I don't know a single person who has competed with any kind of, um, you know, long-term way. Like if you've done multiple competitions and that sort of thing, I don't know anyone who's come out of that process sane, healthy, normal. And if they are, it took a lot of work to get back there, right? There's probably a handful. There's always that 1%, right? That doesn't end up crazy. But, um, but if they are, it takes a lot of mental and emotional work to get back there, especially for women. And I think you've called that out really well, that you know, women's bodies defend, uh, energy balance extremely aggressively because, you know, ev again, evolution is a thing <laughs> and evolution, regardless of our actual life plans, wants women to yeah, potentially be fertile enough to make babies. And evolution doesn't care about your plans. It doesn't care about your defined calves. It doesn't care about your abs. It wants you to have a certain level of body fat and energy intake so that potentially if you are in your reproductive years, you could make a baby. And that's, you know, that's, that's how physiology thinks. It's it's not always in line with what we want as kind of conscious humans. Yeah, you're right. And like, what's interesting, I was listening to another podcast with Arnold Schwarzenegger on it, and they were talking about his whole thing into the bodybuilding world. And he said he really early on, he figured out that everybody who was competing had some sort of insecurity about their body. And he would use that to his advantage to get other people to actually work a little bit harder. So he would go to his like buddies and be like, Hey, did you notice that your quads are kind of small? And then they like right away look down at their quads. And then Arnold said like the next day he would go back to the gym and all they're doing is quad exercises to build up their legs. <laughs> and he said that that was a major like breaking point in his like head. It was like everybody who's doing shows are just really, really insecure about their bodies and they'll do everything that it takes to make themselves look better. And hopefully that's going to make them feel better, but it's usually not the case. Well, that's the thing, right? And I think, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know the degree to which this exists in men, but certainly with women, the role of early life trauma or even current trauma is huge. And this is a piece that people often don't acknowledge, right? Like what drives someone towards extreme control of their body or, or any, you know, any of these behaviors that we're talking about and like this previous trauma or existing trauma or psychological distress 
is really the originator of all of this stuff. I mean, sometimes people stumble into this by accident, right? Again, you're competing in wrestling and you think, oh, I'll cut a few pounds. And, you know, so there, there are those cases that there's no origin other than restriction. But for a lot of people, you know, these roots go really, really deep. And so, again, this is why the food and eating and workout stuff isn't even going to fix it because the original injury, the original wound is so much deeper than that. So, so how would you work with an individual like that? Like, how would you figure out their root cause? Like, what is your kind of process if you had someone with a history of like binge eating and some other like restrictive diets? Like, how would you get to the core of what you need to work on with that? Well, the first place I like to start is actually just bringing awareness to it and, and saying, Hey, uh, you know what? Um, next time you have a binge episode or an eating episode that you don't feel good about, talk yourself through it. Like take some notes. Uh, if you have your smartphone nearby, dictate into it. Any, any way that you want to record, this is up to you, but somehow start to make your process evident to yourself because a lot of times what defines a binge is that it's automatic and you kind of go on autopilot and you check out like your your brain just goes somewhere. And so the first step is just to gain awareness of actually what is even happening here. What am I doing? What am I thinking as this whole thing unfolds? What am I feeling? And then afterwards to maybe work backwards and say, okay, like what was happening half an hour before the start, an hour earlier in the day, whatever. And so bringing awareness to your habits and your patterns and your thoughts and your feelings in those moments is a huge, I think, eye-opening step for a lot of people. And then the second thing is seeing if you can slow it down. Because a binge depends on speed, right? Like you got to just get that stuff in there as quickly as possible. So can we slow the process down? Can we even, even by 30 seconds, like, can you take a breath before you put the next bite in? Can we just slow the process to see if we can get the conscious brain online a little bit? By the time you go through those two steps, it starts to become apparent to people that it's not just about the food and the eating. And I'll say that to them straight up. I'll say, listen, by now it's probably becoming clear to you that it's not about the food. It's not just about the eating. It's not just about the diet. There are other things at work. And I don't want to presume, you know, to like we, we can figure out how much we want to go there within my scope of practice and what you're comfortable talking about. But it's important that you understand that it's not just about the food and the eating and and the body stuff. And I think for clients, once they can get to that place and make that shift, that's really helpful because that that opens up other avenues because then the solution is not another diet. It's not another exercise plan. The solution is something else, which may be frightening, right? A client may think, oh God, I totally don't want to deal with this, right? I don't want to go there. Please let's, you know, give me another diet. I'd rather not even consider this. But I think most clients become open to the idea that there is something deeper, that emotions and thoughts and feelings and physical sensations are connected, that there's a story, right? There's a, there's a coherent narrative. This isn't just a random thing. Um, and that there might be additional support required. So as much as possible, I try to get people going in the direction of counseling. Now I'm qualified to offer that, but I don't, I don't consider it part of my scope of practice for nutrition clients. Um, so, but I can authoritatively say, you know, here's the kind of person I suggest that you work with. And here's the language that you might use to describe the problem. So, um, eventually, ideally you, you kind of frame it as like, I wonder if you could bring an additional 
field of expertise or an additional person into your support network to help you with this. Because I can help you with the physiological piece. I can help you, for example, get more protein to help you make all the chemicals you need to make. And I can help you adjust your carb intake so you're not restricting and, and your body isn't feeling like it's you know not getting the energy it needs. So we can there are things that we can do nutritionally, balance your fat, you know, essential fats, that sort of thing. But I'd like you to add someone else to your support network. And again, most clients are pretty receptive to it once it dawns on them that it isn't just a failure of willpower or them being screwed up and crazy. Now, you, you said a lot of great things there. And I think what would be kind of cool is if we used myself as a case study. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I think, honestly, since I got into this industry, I've always had some sort of like binge behavior and I like the last couple of weeks I've been like really thinking about it like where it stemmed from so my whole story kind of started back in high school I used to be overweight I was like over 200 pounds and one weekend I decided that I was going to read every single article on men's health and whatever website I could find about weight loss and I was like okay I'm going to make this like stick I'm going to do it and then over the summer of grade 10 to going into grade 11 dropped 60 pounds I was like super lean, super skinny. And when I came back to school, everyone was like, oh, who's the new kid? Like no one even recognized me. That was how big the change was. And I like thought thinking about it back then, like I don't think I ever allowed myself to have any junk food whatsoever. Like the most restrictive diet you could ever think of. Like I still ate a lot of food, like meat, veggies and everything, but not like a drop of alcohol, not a drop of, you know, chocolate or whatever it may be. And then Going into the industry, I kind of like started learning about nutrition and I was like, oh, what are these cheat days you speak of? Right. And I started getting <laughs> into that where, you know, Monday to Friday, super clean Saturday, just go for it. And my cheat day would be like on average, say, I will eat a whole large pizza to myself down six beers for my first meal. And then, I don't know, dinner would be like a whole lasagna to myself and like some like half a cheesecake, right? And I just like thought that was normal. And I was like, all right, I'm going to eat clean all week. And then I'm going to do this on Saturdays. And it, it like became a ritual. I always looked forward to it. But then I realized like when Monday rolled around, I'm like, I can't wait until Saturday. I can't mm-hmm. wait. I can't wait. And then you were like miserable, like leading up to the week. And you're like looking, for, it was almost like a need, like I had to have it. And recently, what I've been trying to do is almost like cut it up into little pieces where if, you know, it's Tuesday and I feel like having a burger for dinner, I'll have it. A couple of days go by and I'm like, you know what? I want a couple of cookies. I'll have some because I kind of figured out that it's not so much that I need to have so much of it is just a little bit. So I don't know if I'm on the right track or whatever kind of popped up in your head. Let's see where this goes. Yeah, I have I have lots of questions, so we may not get to them all. But (laughs) like one of the things that strikes me right away that I'm curious about, if I go back to high school, why were you 200 pounds? Like what was the series of events that brought you there? Um, So I'm an immigrant. So I came to Canada from Poland at three and I think the introduction of like McDonald's and junk food was the prime like issue. So I remember back in high school, like if I wanted to have breakfast, it would easily be like a liter of Coke and a bag of chips because it was quick and easy. And I just kind of fell into that whole idea. Like I still remember like 
dinners, I would always have a glass of Coke no matter what. Uh And it was like always in the house. So I was like, whatever, I'm just going to do it. So that's, I think that's why, like I always had junk food available and it was easy to grab. I didn't have to wait for my mom to cook. So if dinner was, you know, running late, I was like, whatever, I'm just going to eat a bag of chips or like a whole box of granola bars. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. And, and, and so that, it sounds like that was significantly different than what you were used to. And I'm, I'm also kind of curious about like, even that transition process of coming to Canada at age three, like you probably don't even remember, but I mean, can you, do you have any recollection of what it used to be like? Was, was food different there or the headspace different? Well, from what I like remember from my mom and grandmother telling me what Poland was, it's like everything was you know, homemade. There was no like processed foods whatsoever. So you're like, our diet would consistently be of like potatoes, some sort of chicken or meat and lots of veggies constantly. And I Mm -hmm. remember growing up hating eating that because the option of junk food was available. So I'd Mm -hmm. always pick that and I would like almost manipulate my mother in order to get what I want. And then eventually she would cave in. And I guess I learned that, you know, if I be a little difficult for long enough, I can get what I want. So I guess that just over time, she just kind of gave in, gave in, gave in, and then I kept growing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've, you've actually drawn out two key factors already in this brief anecdote, which is, first of all, you were exposed to a food environment that disrupts our normal physiological regulation right? Um, so not, not, not the Eastern Europeans are famed for their svelte figures. Like yeah. half my family's Ukrainian. So uh, I, I know this to be true, but, but basically you went from a diet that in some way would make it somewhat easier to regulate yourself physiologically so that your normal appetite and hunger and fullness mechanisms could do their job to an environment where, you know, with processed foods, it's extremely hard to regulate yourself physiologically, right? And and kids should have fairly good appetite regulation systems. So the fact that this began fairly early on is interesting. Um, and the other piece of it is that you had a family behavior pattern around food that somehow enabled this, right? Somehow made it possible and enabled it. And I mean, we could dig deeper and find out what messages were in your family about food and eating and so forth. But right there, you have basically a physiological stimulus and a behavioral stimulus. So this is the antecedent, right? Um, so then, okay. What, what made you decide to drop 60 pounds? Um, I would say when I got into high school, girls became a very important thing in my life mm-hmm. and constantly being turned down and not being noticed by them at all. When all my friends were like, you know, the typical, like skinny and athletic played really high level sports. So all the girls just kind of flocked to them. So I always had it in the back of my head, like, you know, eventually I'll, I'll get fit. Eventually I'll do it. And one time I was like, okay, this is enough. I need to get serious about it. Mm-hmm. And what was it like to, like before you lost the weight, to sort of move through the teenage social space as a 200-pound kid? Like, what did that feel like? Oh, it was horrible. I was, like, depressed. Uh, music was, like, my best friend. I would listen to a lot of rap and, like, punk rock to get through the days. But, uh I know that was that was my like outlet is just music to keep me going. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, here we have a couple more factors that are like part of the puzzle, right? We have social norms that reward 
having a certain kind of body or looking a certain kind of way. Uh, and we have a lot of pressure on that front too. It's not just like that there's a norm, but there's like active pressure, uh, on that front that, that if you don't look a certain way, there's active rejection, like you think like it's outright explicit rejection. Um, and then there's a sort of underlying piece of how do you feel moving through the world in a body that is not socially acceptable, right? Like you feel depressed, you feel ashamed, you feel like, ugh. I, I don't want to be in this container. So now we're up to four factors. <laughs> and again, I'm sure there's more. Yeah. Um, uh, so, okay. So we go on the restrictive diet. Uh, it's, and you know, you strike me as someone who, um, thinks about things in very systematic ways. So it strikes me that a restrictive diet would sort of speak to you mentally. Like it's, there was something about this diet that appealed to you. Am I correct? Um, well, I can't remember the exact article, but like, I think the gist of it was eating six meals a day instead of like three big ones was the way to go. So I looked up, uh, I can't remember what it was called. They gave like a list of foods that you should be eating and there was nothing like bad about it other than just no junk food. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I cut out junk food. Like it was like a flip of a switch. Like I decided the night before and the next day I just stopped like completely. So I ate nothing but vegetables, fruit, lean protein, like brown rice and like yams for carbs, but like six small meals throughout the day, like between two to 300 calories. And then on top of that, what I did was during summer and I was playing football. So we had a summer camp where you would work out in the weight room three days and then do like skills and different stuff on the field for another three days. So I like worked out six days a week I still remember on my day off, I would still work out at home doing mm-hmm. like body weight exercises. So I was just like, I, I was on a mission and I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really familiar story for a lot of people because like what you're describing is on the one hand, a situation that can be incredibly productive and beneficial, right? Like young kid gets into healthy eating and working out, transforms his body at a perfect moment, like of puberty, when all the hormones are aligning, like it's just the the ideal moment for building muscle and dropping fat and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, a lot of these situations start perfectly fine. Like someone wants to get in shape or just eat healthier or fit into their pants a little bit better. Um, and so the initial um, attempts to do that, the initial diet or workout, whatever, may be completely innocuous. Like maybe that was actually um, not necessarily a bad thing. But what tends to happen is almost like the roller coaster starts to crest the hill, right? So it's going yeah. up the hill, go through it, and it crests, and, and you and you pass a certain point where you're getting rewarded for this, and so you don't stop, right? It doesn't. So you so you get to a certain point, and you're like, man, this is I'm getting so rewarded for this from whatever direction it's coming, let's see how far I can go. So if I'm working out three days a week, what about four? What about five? What about six? What about two a days? If I'm losing 40 pounds, what about 50? What about 60? What about a hundred, right? Like how far can I push this because I'm getting approval for what I'm doing and it feels really good, right? I lost some weight. I'm feeling good. People are approving. Cool. What if I kept going? And that's sort of the shift that happens. And I don't know if that resonates with your story. But the level of exercise makes me curious. So I don't know. You tell me. Um, I would say, like, I got to a point where, like, I got pretty lean, but I was always trying to get leaner and trying to get the so-called, like, six-pack to a point where it's, like, super shredded, like, cover model, like, 
six pack and not just, you know, flat abs and you can see the first two and you're probably, I was probably like 10% body fat or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted more for some reason. Mm -hmm. And like, even today I'm like, yeah, it's stupid that I want it. But in the back of my head, I still kind of want it. If that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And, and tell me when you say you always wanted more, like, like what will happen if you get all of that? See, like (laughs) I knew this question would come up because I asked myself, I'm like, okay, well, if I get the six pack, how does my life change? Nothing really other than like a cool photo. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I got a photo of a six pack and that doesn't really do anything. Right. But the want is still there, even though I know it's not going to change that much for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me ask the question a different way. What um, what pain would you avoid by getting that? Um, I don't know, like sometimes because I think about it this way, like I want that six pack, but it's almost like how I was thinking when I was back in high school. And even though I've changed my life, like I'm in the industry, I'm helping other people, you know, lose weight and keep it off. But sometimes the voice of me back in high school when I was overweight is still telling me that I need it, even though there's days where I'm like, I actually don't. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's so strange to me. But yeah, that's what kind of what's going in my head. Mm-hmm. So you're hearing that that pre-grade 10 voice or whatever that would be, (laughs) right? That teenage voice. Um, and like, can you describe like the act, like, can you, if you could put words to that voice, like what, what would it be saying? I honestly think it's like, if I had a six pack, I could get any girl I I want because Mm -hmm. I, I remember one specific conversation where I was at, like, I think it was the dance or something like that. And I had, one girl I went up to asked her to dance and she's like, I would never dance with you cause you're fat. I'm like, damn mm-hmm. it. Right. Like that was kind of like, I think my tipping point. And I think that was around the time when I was like, okay, F this, I'm going to get serious about weight loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad you told that story because one of the questions I was thinking about was, um, why did someone just turn on a dime? Right what makes someone suddenly decide to do something? And often it is something just like that, where we have that moment and someone's like, I don't want to date you because you're fat. And you're like, Ugh. Yeah. like it just, it kind of just crumples your soul a little bit. Right. And that sticks with you. And I, and I kind of have this theory totally unscientifically that our lives are almost like this tree. And as we grow older, the branches grow and and become more complex. But if something significant and painful happens to us at a certain point, that branch kind of stops growing. And so we might go on with our lives and be totally functional adults and pay our bills and stuff. But when a situation comes up that evokes that old situation, we go right back to that age in our minds that we were that, you know, when that domain of, of life occurred. So you may be a completely grown up person in all the ways that matter, except for that one piece, that one piece is still kind of living in that other time. It's almost like a jet lag thing. And so when you talk to people about behaviors, one of the questions I like to ask or get them to think about is how old are you right now? Like in this moment, how old are you? And probably I'm guessing in you telling the story, you're almost reliving that moment, right? Like mm-hmm. you probably part of you yeah. is just like, Ugh. 
So this is the brain, the teenage brain that is driving the grown-up you in this moment. Yeah, I can see that. Because, hey, honestly, there's some times where during the day I will act just like I am in high school. And the funny thing about that is, like, um, I married my high school sweetheart, and uh, we still act the same since the first day we started dating. We're, like, (laughs) complete kids. And if the world saw how we act, they would be like, there's something wrong with you guys. (laughs) But... It's been like that for, like, we've been together eight years. Like, nothing's changed. Like, we're still the same kids from high school. And there are times where we're, like, you know, normal adults, like, how the world is supposed to see you. But when we're together, it's like we're still those kids from high school, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so part of you still living there. And, and it sounds like not in a bad way necessarily, right? There's, yeah. there's that piece of you that is a teenager that is also... Uh, a teenager in all the best ways, right? Fun and silly and stupid and laugh at fart jokes and stupid movies (laughs) and whatever, right? So it sounds like that part of yourself is actually kind of a a good part. It's just not completely integrated with who you want to be right now. Yeah, I would say so. Mm -hmm. And so now you're engaging in puzzling behavior, right? You're like, why am I even doing this? It doesn't make sense to you. It feels weird, right? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess something else I'm curious about is, um, like what, what feels kind of good about the whole like clean eating during the week and then cheat day on the weekend? Like what feels kind of good about that? Um, I would say the fact that I'm eating super clean during the week is the fact that it's bringing me to possibly more muscle, possibly Mm -hmm. more strength. I feel good when I'm eating clean because I feel like... You know, I'm not dragged down because like even if I do like a one day binge and sometimes it translate it translates into like, oh, I'll have one more meal on Sunday and you can almost feel the junk food like weighing you down. You're not (laughs) functioning properly and you're like, oh, my God, this was not worth it. But having that cheat day is like I don't know what it is. It's like if I had to choose anything, it would always be pizza or some sort of like carb with bread. And I can, mm-hmm. it just tastes amazing. I don't know what it is. Like I could, if I could live off just bread and cheese, that would be it. <laughs> so during, during the week, is any bread or cheese permitted? Um, well, like recently the last, maybe say the last month I've been trying to sprinkle small things like that, that, um, makes me, I would say almost like carries me over for the next couple of days and I've been kind of experimenting with, you know, what maybe a trigger food is and what a buffer food is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing that I've been doing now is after dinner, I'll have like a whole bowl of like strawberries because one, they just, they fill me up pretty quick and they're pretty sweet. So I don't feel like I need to eat chocolate or anything like that. Or if the days where I feel like I need a chocolate, I have like Easter eggs frozen in my freezer (laughs) and I'll grab like one or two and I'll have them. And I'm like, yeah, I'm satisfied. I don't really need anything. So I've been trying to experiment with that where I like, you know, sprinkle the small like treats for myself. So on Saturday, I don't feel like, yeah, let's go to Olive Garden and just crush like three like baskets of breadsticks. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you imagine a binge day, like... 
do you wake up on Saturday morning going, yeah, <laughs> yeah do seriously. this. Like what's like, take me through the, the thoughts and the feelings that you have throughout that day. Um, so like I haven't done a big binge like that before. And I think another thing I should add was that I was following a book, um, that I bought from another coach and in there, there was like one giant cheat day where you can just like go for it. And then after do a 24 hour fast. So I don't think that actually helped because knowing that I had a 24 hour fast, I had to like really make my cheat day count. Mm -hmm. So thinking back then, that was maybe like last year when I did this, um, I would wake up and I would like, actually during the week, whatever craving I had, I would write it down and that would be my shopping list. So that, mm. that, that was what, how I started it. So whatever I crave during the week, write it down. And I'm like, okay, Saturday morning, I'm going to go here, here and here. And I'm going to be good for the day. And I remember, like I said earlier, like full pizza, like a large one to myself, a bunch of beers for like one meal. Dinner could be like a whole rack of ribs and a whole cheesecake and maybe some more beer. And if I could fit in a snack in between where I physically can't like put anything else in my mouth, um, I was like good to go. <laughs> so that was <laughs> kind of like my whole process. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay. So, so it strikes me that a lot of the thoughts you had on that day were kind of revolving around relief from deprivation, right? Cause you yeah. sort of not just physically deprived yourself or like in terms of food, but also mentally deprived yourself, like clamped it down and controlled it. And, and then of course, you know, the, the post, the post cheat fast is always like a classic way to try to get yourself back into control. Right. But it really does augment this mindset of like, okay, here we go back into sucky old deprivation. Yeah. So there's almost like there's, there's a, there's a food deprivation and then there's like a mental deprivation, like an emotional deprivation where, the story that you're telling yourself around what's even happening here is really significant. Like, cause if, okay, let's, let's imagine you had some kind of disease, right? Some kind of, um, I don't know, like, yeah, some kind of disease where from, from now until eternity ended, you could never eat bread and cheese, right? Like you would just get tumors that fell off your head and right? <laughs> if you ate bread and cheese, like you would feel kind of bad about bread and cheese, but you wouldn't be like, my life sucks because I can't have bread and cheese. You'd be like, well, you know, this is kind of what I need to do. Or if you had a child in the house that was horribly anaphylactically allergic to bread and cheese, if you didn't eat it, you'd be like, well, I'm doing this for little Jimmy. It's going to keep him safe. Like your story around what you'd be doing would be different, right? And you might feel differently about it and have a different experience of it. But right now the story is one of deprivation, right? Like I'm not getting this stuff. And so when I get it, I need to really make it count. Yeah. Right. Is that yeah. fair to say? Oh yeah. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And the other piece that strikes me is, um, a big part of binge eating is the planning. The planning <laughs> is so good. The anticipating and what am I going to eat and where am I going to get it? And in what order will I get it? Will I go to this place first and that place first? And what will I wash it down with? And so that is also part of the binge story, right? The anticipation, because, after a certain point, eating it is no longer fun, right? My guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, please do. By the end of Saturday, you're like, it's a little mechanical, right? You're just like, let's get this down. Come on, we got a job to do. But you're not 
enjoying it as much as you did maybe with the first few bites is that is that your experience you tell me um oh yeah i would say like by the end of the day when i'm like just scarfing down food just because i need to knowing that i won't be able to do it for a while Mm -hmm. um i don't think yeah i don't think it's like an enjoyment thing i think it would probably be good enough if i just had my first meal that i was planning on for the day whereas like yeah later in the day it's like yeah, I guess I'll have another slice of cheesecake. <laughs> Let's just get this done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly. Well, and, and you know, a, a key point I think is so interesting is that there are two different brain systems governing reward-seeking behavior or anticipation and actually enjoying things. And so they can operate sort of independently. And one of the hallmarks of addictive behaviors is that you persist in the activity, even if it actively causes you pain. So when I was at my height of binge eating, like I would go to bed and just have the worst stomach ache. Like I can't even imagine what stretch damage I was doing to my insides. (laughs) Right. Um, and I would feel so bad, like just physically so bad. And yet I would do this over and over and over again to the point where I was writing notes to myself, dear future Krista (laughs) or dear past Krista in an hour from now, you're going to feel terrible. So don't do this. But we persist in the behavior despite negative consequences, right? I mean, that's the hallmark of addiction. We feel compelled to do something that eventually we stop enjoying. And the reason is because you have these two different brain systems. And so the brain system that is reward seeking and anticipation generating and planning is the brain that is in control for the most part during the whole binging process. So the pleasure brain, the brain that actually likes stuff, temporarily shows up at the beginning. It's like, ooh, this first bite is really yummy. Hey, thanks. But then it just goes offline. And so it's just stimulus, 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 reward, reward, reward. So I always thought that was sort of interesting, that difference between wanting something and liking something. So I don't know how that lands for you to, to hear that, that, you know, you persist in something despite not actually enjoying it. Um, well, like the one thing I noticed that now that I've been trying to break up my cheats throughout the week, when the weekend comes and it's Saturday, I don't have the need to be like, oh, I can't wait to get this. I can't mm-hmm. wait to buy, I don't know, a whole bowl of pasta and just down it. Like that need for it is kind of gone. So I hope I'm kind of on the right track to like keeping this under control, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Well, let me ask you, uh, what does normal eating look like to you? Like, how would you, how would you say a normal eating person eats like a person with no food issues? Like how would they eat? Um, I would almost look at it like. You know, they're eating their fruits and veggies and lean protein. And if they're like, you know what, I'm going to have a piece of cake. They have it. They don't have any kind of second thought. They don't go, oh, no, I shouldn't have it because I'm trying to eat healthy. Or, you know what, I'll just wait until later and see if I'm hungry then. Like, it's just like you want a piece of cake, you'll have a piece of cake. And then the next day they're okay. And then maybe on a Wednesday or Thursday, their friends ask them to go out for dinner. They don't have any second thought like, oh, that restaurant's not going to you know, fit into my macros or anything like that. They're just like, yeah, I'll come out. I think that's what comes to mind when it comes to like, you know, good eating. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe the emotional state of that normal eating person? Like what do they, how, how do they feel about their eating? Um, I would say that they have full control. That's what kind of comes to mind right off the bat. Like, you just have control over food and food doesn't have control over you. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so if we imagine that person, that perfectly sane, uncomplicated, normal eating person as like a 10, like the, the ideal, let's call them, and the most screwed up person we can imagine who's eating like broken glass or something like that as a, <laughs> as a one, how, how close would you say that you are to that normal eating person now in the last month compared to where you were? Um, I would say I'm pretty close. Like this past weekend wasn't the best, but I'm not like, oh my God, like I really need to fix my diet. I'm like stressing about it. I just like took a second to like reflect on it. And I was like, you know what? I could have done better. I didn't have to go out again to eat somewhere for dinner. Like I could have just gone home because I have all my meals prepped and cooked. I can just could have done that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I would say I'm pretty close to that you know, ideal person, but again, I'm not perfect. So. Right. So would you be like a seven or an eight along that continuum? Yeah. I would say like seven, seven and a half, maybe. So that's pretty good. All things considered. Right. And so, and, and where would you say that you were at your worst on that continuum? Um, maybe like a three or four, cause it got pretty bad. Like, I, I, okay. like, I, I like went for it like I had nothing holding me back and then my like wife was just like you're just crazy and I'm like leave me alone let me just do this <laughs> <laughs> you don't know my life <laughs> yes, you don't understand. Like, yeah 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 I had the same response by the way when people were trying to fix me I was like you don't know man I'm <laughs> yeah. hardcore <laughs> so you've gone from a three or a four on this continuum to now being more like a 7.5 that's pretty impressive actually well like i like because i'm in this industry and i read a bunch of stuff i already know what the tools are maybe not Mm -hmm. the best ones but like they've been in front of me and i'm a type of person where if i read something and i want to accomplish a goal i'm like okay what do i need to do to do it let's go do it like anytime it comes to anything in life like i had uh one of my guests last week he was asking me if i ever do you know single uh, podcast episodes and I'm like no I just interview somebody and he's like well it'd probably be a better idea if you did one single one and one with someone that you interview because then you can kind of showcase you being a coach and you actually make probably generate more business that way and I'm like oh it's a really good idea I'll start next week like it's not, <laughs> it's not like a whole like oh it's a good idea you know maybe I'll like write it down and maybe like a year from now I'll actually do it but I've always been a type of person where if someone's like, you know, this is a good idea. Or if I go to a conference and I pick up two things, I'll actually start doing them right away. Not just like, oh, that's cool. (laughs) So I don't know, like, I've really been trying to get it better. So like yesterday, for example, like I ate really clean. And I was like, you know what, I want a beer. So I just had a beer and it felt good. And there you go. I'm like, not stressing about it. I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm going to gain like two pounds if I step on a scale. <laughs> like I just don't care about it as much anymore. If that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so what was that like to kind of play in that sandbox of like, yeah, I had a beer, whatever. And it was good. I wrote a blog, like <laughs> it gave <laughs> me some more motivation. Like I felt more relaxed almost and right. at ease that I had control over the situation where I know if I had like another beer and started getting like a buzz going, then that would just be like a downhill spiral into like, oh, those chips on the counter look pretty good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And, you know, something you're bringing up, I think, is really important for people listening is the difference between internal control and external control, right? So external control is me giving you a rule and saying, you know, you can only have one beer, right? That's external control, rules and and plans and stuff that's kind of outside of you. Whereas I think what you're getting at is more of an internal compass, right? An internal guidance system that starts to sense into like, okay, what are the, where are my guardrails here, right? What are the edges of the road for me, the path that I want to be on? And sometimes I'll be straight down the road and other times I'll be closer to the guardrails, but the guardrails inside me are always there and I can trust myself to make good decisions and wise decisions for myself. So it sounds like what you're describing in terms of this ideal of control and with the normal eater is someone who's guided from within, right? Because a normal eater, I think we could probably agree, doesn't follow rules, they don't have rules yeah. by definition, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you're getting at something that's really key to, to bring out. But I also want to highlight something that's happening here is that you are now using your strengths in the service of this project of becoming more sane. And what I mean by that is your first diet, you turned on a dime. And you're like, God damn it. I'm reading everything I can and I'm coming up with a plan and I'm doing it. And you did it. So that's clearly a strength, right? And then the strength is now being used in the service of this current project of, of becoming more sane around food. So I feel like for people listening, what I would want them to take away is to ask themselves, what are my strengths? What are my superpowers? And sometimes your superpowers are embedded in what you think are your dysfunctions, right? <laughs> like if you're a highly organized person, maybe you organize your dysfunctional behavior in some way. Maybe you track your food and all this kind of stuff. But there's a nugget of strength in there that can also be used for the power of good. And what really resonates for me in your story is, first of all, the fact that you pulled yourself out of what sounded like a very deep hole. So kudos to you. And you know, to folks listening, it's really important to celebrate the fact that you notice the down parts but forget the up parts, right? You forget about the times that you tried to do things in a better way or a wiser way. Um, but it's really important to call those out. And so the place that you're at now where you can even have this conversation represents so much psychological, emotional, mental, even physical work on your part. And I I think that's really crucial to call out and you're using your superpowers. You decided on something, you read about it, you learned about it, you got some tools and you chose to execute so in, in a sense, the thing that got you into the hole is getting you out of the hole as well, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I think so, too. Like before having this conversation, I was like, I really hope I'm not really screwed up. And then like Chris is going to tell me, yeah, you should probably go see somebody. <laughs> right? like, I was just like, like stressing about it a little bit. I'm like, I really hope I'm doing OK. <laughs> no, and I think that's important to call out with clients who are struggling or if you're someone who's listening like focus on the resilience and the resourcefulness here because in the beginning too what you were doing is an attempt to solve a problem right i'm getting rejected i feel crappy about myself i'm going to solve this problem and you solved the friggin problem right like you attacked the problem and you attempted to solve it and you kicked its ass uh and and that's so crucial to call it and through this entire process really you've demonstrated tremendous resilience because you've always been trying to do the right thing, right? Even if you got off on the wrong route, um, the underlying motivation is I want to do the right thing here. 
uh, for me, that's just so crucial to call out and, and sort of look at this as a process and an ongoing unfolding process too, right? It's, you're not done yet. You're making progress. You're going somewhere. So, okay, let me just ask you this one. Thought sure. experiment. So you're about a 7.5. Um, what would it look like to move along the sanity continuum to an 8? Um, I would say maybe like, cause this past year was probably the first year I traveled the most in my entire life. I had two trips away. I went to Mexico and in Jamaica and holy crap, I did not know I could drink so much alcohol. Like, <laughs> I was like, I had a game with myself. I was like, I need to make this like worth my time. So I calculated, you know, per drink, it would be, you know, eight or nine bucks. So I would average at least, I think it was like 10 per day. And I made it a game to make sure I got 10 drinks per day. I love how you made it a game. That's what's <laughs> yeah. most awesome about that story to me. Yeah. So I was like, you know, 10 drinks. So I was like, oh, that's perfect. But I'm like, at the same time, that's a lot of calories. And like, depending on what it was, like rum and Coke was like a go-to and, to like really up the ante, I would drink doubles to a certain point. And then I was like, how, oh. how are you not face down in the pool by the end of all this? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I have high tolerance for it, but, um, I don't, I don't, I actually don't know. Like, that's a good question. But then like, you know, you have like the buffet and restaurants to choose from. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's go for it. Right. And I think to get to an eight or 8.5 to be able to go on vacation and not feel like you're obligated or you have this need to like, really put yourself to the max and see how far your body can go for eating and consuming alcohol. Right. Okay. So that's really interesting. So what you're talking about is like the contextual difference, right? The different situations would give you different levels of ability to cope. And so one of the things we do with clients is we make them, um, come up with a, what we call a risk hierarchy, right? So which situations feel most risky or least risky or more sane or least sane? And for me, like one of the most challenging situations was family gatherings because my family loves to eat and it's kind of stressful because everyone's arguing or like whatever. So it's like, it's all the things together at once. Um, and, and, and tons of food <laughs> and we just, you know, as soon as you get in the door, there's food in your face. So for me, that was that kind of situation. Um, whereas the least risky situation for me was, oh, I'm working at home and I have my routine and I have healthy food in the fridge and whatever. So one of the things that's worth thinking about is where am I at my best and where do I struggle the most? And how can I bring those lessons of where I'm best into the situations where I struggle a little bit more? You know, so, oh, okay. Um, I noticed that when I'm eating alone, I can follow my inner compass a little bit better. I can feel my hunger signals. Okay, could I work on feeling hunger signals when I eat with someone else? If I eat socially, could I, could I make that a project, right? So taking what's working in the least risky situations and moving them into the more risky situations is another great way to move along the continuum. So I really like the way that you've described this project because I think that's it's pretty cool. And, I, and I'm also wondering, like, what would be an intermediate step? Like, what would be, okay, so, like, the, the all-inclusive resort is, like, the 8.5 or maybe even a 9. Like, what's the 8, the 8.1, right? Would it be, like, <laughs> a vacation, but you have an Airbnb, so, you're like, you're making all your own food? Like, you can kind of plot this course along the continuum, right, and ask yourself, okay, where am I at right now and where would I like to go? And what would that look like? 
Um, and let me ask you another question though. Sure. So, okay. So you're at 7.5. What would drop you down to a, like, why aren't you a six? Um, I would say that, uh, like, even though I know, you know, binging on Saturday is not the best choice. It's almost like if I don't think about it and, you know, Monday passes by, I ate super clean, Tuesday passes by, um, I ate super clean and then Wednesday I'm like, oh shit, like I haven't had like a cheat or like a small treat, like I should probably do it. So I almost have to like pay attention to my days and make sure I have something small. So then my weekend is set up. So if I'm not Mm. paying attention, you know, I might be like, oh shit, it's Saturday. I guess I should probably eat a bunch of junk food. Right. So I almost like have in the back of my head, like, all right, Monday, do I feel like I need something? No. Tuesday rolls around. Actually, you know what? I can probably have something small. And then I have it. Like if I don't think about it, then it probably would set me up for failure. You've just said something so crucial and amazing, which is this idea of, well, there's two pieces checking in, like having a, a, a pattern of checking in with yourself, whether that's mm-hmm. daily or multiple times a day and paying attention, like just paying attention and asking like what's happening right now. How am I feeling? What's the vibe? What's going on here? Like asking yeah. your body, what, what is, what is happening right now? I'm making a point of checking in with you. What's going on. And I think you have just put your finger on the solution to be totally honest. Oh, awesome. Perfect. I got there without knowing. <laughs> well, you kind of did and you're further ahead than you realize. That's awesome. And like the other thing that I noticed about having these small, like little treats throughout the week it actually works better for my marriage because a couple <laughs> of weeks ago I was like, I picked up my wife from work and I'm like, let's go out for dinner. She's like, it's Thursday. I'm like, I know, let's do it. And she got like all excited that we're going for dinner on a Thursday Aww. instead of like it was a Saturday. Right. So it, it works both, both ways. Well, and I think that's really important to call out because any, any kind of significant chronic problem that we have in our lives doesn't just affect us unless we live on a desert island, right? Or in solitary confinement. But like, but in general, like, you know, we are embedded in a web of relationships and when we are affected, somehow it affects the people around us too. It certainly affected my relationship with my husband when I was deep in my eating stuff. Um, whether that was, uh, you know, I was uh, thinking about other things. Like we would, I remember very clearly, um, we went to a Sedona a couple, few years in a row. I remember the first year we went, we went on this beautiful hike. And if you've ever been to Sedona, Arizona, it's just like this magical place with beautiful red mesas and stuff, just amazing scenery and great hiking. And I remember being on this hike surrounded by like the most majestic of nature's creations and thinking about food and what I was going to eat and all that kind of crap. Right. And then I remember going back a few years later and doing that same hike and, and crossing a certain landmark and thinking, Oh my God, three years ago when I was here, I was thinking about this. And now I'm just thinking about being here. And that's an amazing thing. And I can be present with my husband and present with this experience that I'm having. So it's, I think you've just nailed something so key, which is that it's not just about you and it's not just about your own private, um, thing that you're going through working to get better at this and working to be more sane has wonderful effects 
elsewhere. You can enjoy your life. You can enjoy people around you. You can have relationships. Like you can do fun stuff. I mean, think about how much cool stuff you could do if you weren't thinking about food and eating and body stuff or planning your meals or all that kind of, you know, you could just, I don't know, learn Cantonese or I don't know what the hell you could do, but it could be a, a lot of other very cool things, even if that was just having more fun in your life man this was so awesome like you you're so smart with this stuff honestly (laughs) (laughs) well i think it's important for people to understand they're not crazy they're not alone they're not broken your body is responding very normally to the stimulus that it's getting but also you can pull yourself out of it. You know, you're never screwed. It's never too late. Even if you've been a, um, a disordered eater for years and years and years, I have clients in their fifties and sixties who are changing and growing and, and changing habits that have been with them for decades. So it's completely, completely possible for sure. Yeah. That was pure gold again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe last question, cause we're already at a full hour. Um, do you have any projects coming up? Any like news or exciting stuff that's going to be happening with your career? Well, I've been doing a bunch of speaking gigs, which is fun. I always like traveling and, uh, and meeting people and especially in the fitness industry, I've been doing a lot of speaking to trainers and coaches. And so it's really nice to just go out and meet them and, and hear what's on their minds and, and just see the way that the industry is evolving because I think it is going in a really nice direction in a lot of ways. So for example, I've been doing, um, training sessions at Equinox and to just, and I've been doing it on behavior change and to see a major fitness change, being curious about behavior change and wanting to train their trainers on, on those kinds of concepts is really great. It shows that the industry is maturing and, and, you know, can be a career for people where you work towards mastery and growth in your profession. So that's, that's kind of nice to see. And I've got a few books on the go and I've got a book on resilience uh, with Craig Weller from Verifa Fitness. And I've got a book on uh, counseling methods and coaching tentatively titled steal this coaching. Because <laughs> um, there's a lot of cool stuff from counseling that you can steal and, and use in coaching, whether that's just a good question or, or a cool concept. And so those are the two big ones on the, on the board and just finished this book on genetic testing for precision nutrition. And so, uh, we'll be bringing that one out, I think sometime in September, that'll be an ebook and it's huge. It's, I think if it were in print, it would be about 300 pages, oh, but it's all that we know about genetic testing and what genetic testing can tell you about, you know, can it really tell you about your health and fitness and nutrition, like to what degree and I mean, I'll give you a little bit of spoiler, which is to say that genetics is complicated. (laughs) You wouldn't have thought so, but actually it kind of is. Uh, And so, you know, the science is really cool and interesting and we can see a lot, but uh, it's more complex than I think a lot of people give it credit for. It's not like I can find one gene and be like, oh, hey, cool. You should never eat bananas. Like it's it's not (laughs) like that. I wish it was, but biology is super complicated. So that's, that's what's on the board right now. And, uh, yeah, just having a lot of fun traveling around and, and meeting folks. And I'll be down in, uh, in Long Beach at the perform better summit in a couple of weeks and doing an episode of the fit cast with my good buddy, Kevin Larrabee, who's always a fun time and, uh, Jill Coleman. So yeah, lots of things on the board. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This is just plain amazing. Well, what you have to do is you have to get in touch with me in like two weeks or so to let <laughs> yeah. me know it's shifted for you mentally because something will digest in your brain after this conversation. Oh, for sure it will. 
Now, what I want to talk about today is a topic that is really close to my heart, and it's binge eating. So if you've been following my show for a while, you know, I did a solo episode with my experience and an episode with Krista Scott Dixon where, you know, I was the client and she was my coach and we kind of talked through my shit. Um, And I kind of wanted to give an update because if I really think about my experience with binge eating, um, I've honestly had it since grade 11. Like, I've been dealing with it this entire time, and, you know, I never knew it was an issue until two years ago, three years ago, maybe, and, you know, I just never thought of it, you know, like, I, it didn't hit me, like, I thought it was normal to, you know, plan out a whole cheat day of what I was going to eat and write down what I was craving and then go get it. Now, I kind of want to tell everyone what I'm doing right now. So, you know, I told myself uh, I'm going to stop binging as much as possible. And one of my things I did was I decided to have cheats, like cheat snacks, little like treats throughout the week rather than having a full-blown day gorge of whatever I can fit into my mouth. And, you know, it was working and everything like that, but I I want more. Not in the sense of I want more food, but I want better results. So, you know, as a fat kid growing up, to this day, I still kind of think of myself as being fat. Messed up, right? Um, And it, it sucks because anytime I train or start eating healthy really regularly, I really want to get shredded. I really want to have a six pack of this and that and blah, blah, blah. But it's really hard when you have this like mental covering on how your brain is actually supposed to think that, you know, I weigh what is it 155 pounds but I still look at myself as fat which doesn't make sense right like the way of my thinking is broken and all the stuff that I've been trying to do to fix it is not working so even for myself my next step is to go see a therapist and hopefully work out all that bullshit of mine um So for a while there, I was doing, you know, small treats throughout the week. So, you know, Tuesday came around and I'm like, oh, you know what? I want a slice of pizza. I'll go get a slice of pizza. It'd carry me over. Friday would come around. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go out for dinner. I'm going to have a burger or whatever. And, you know, it worked a while. And I was like, you know what? I, this is good for me, but I, I want to diet a little harder. So, you know, after Christmas... Actually, that's another good story. So Christmas time, all of December, my wife uh, always bakes cookies. And she outdid herself this year and made some amazing cookies. And, you know, I think every day, minimum three cookies, maximum of like six per day. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? So again, I've said it in the show before, know what your trigger foods are, know what your buffer foods are, because... This 
will help you. If you know that your trigger food is cookies like I am, then I will devour a whole plate of them no problem. If my buffer food was dried fruit, have a couple pieces, I'm good to go. But um, I told myself, you know, January, just like every client that I've ever trained, I'm like, I'm going to get serious. I'm going to start dieting. So January 1st, I believe I weighed in at 168. And um, I believe as of today, I'm sitting around the 155 to 157 mark, depending on the time of day when I weigh myself in. So, you know, in the last two months, I've lost around 10 pounds, which is awesome. So what have I been doing? Well, I've been tracking everything I've been eating. I've cut my calories down. Um, I believe when I tracked the first time just to see where I was at, probably I try probably cut my calories by at least at least a thousand calories. Been tracking every single macro and you know, I started seeing the weight just come right off. I'm like, okay, I'm getting leaner. I can see it. And my goal is to get as lean as possible. And hopefully nothing else stops me from getting there. But um, so recently my wife's birthday came up and Valentine's Day. So I'm like, ah, shit, like this, it's not going to like, it's not going to help me. So um, I was like, okay, whatever, you know, it'll be two days where I just like, don't worry about calories, don't worry about macros, whatever. And, you know, the treats came in, the food, the alcohol, and I was, fuck, I was, I was back to where I started. I didn't gain all my weight back. It's just I didn't have the self-control that I hoped I had that, you know, if after one beer, I would be like, okay, I'm done. It's like, no, let's have two more or whatever. Let's also have another slice of cake. Let's have another donut because my wife really likes donuts for um, her birthday. And I'm like, well, fuck's sakes. Like, I thought I was over this, but clearly I'm not. And it probably doesn't help that um, I'm calorie counting and counting my macros. But for some reason, I really enjoy doing it. Like, I like tracking my food before every meal. I got to make sure that my calories are still intact and my macros are at the right uh, grams. And then I go eat. For some odd reason, I like it. But anyway, um, that probably didn't set me up the best solution. But... Honestly, I've been dealing with this whole binge eating thing for way too long and it just pisses me off that I still to this day have episodes where, oh, there's a slice of cake. Might as well eat four slices rather than one. So I think what the point is in this podcast episode that I'm going to try to wrap up right now is if you are a fitness enthusiast or even a coach who deals with binge eating, emotional eating, or what have you, this will always happen. You know, I think... This is my personal opinion. I don't think someone could overcome binge eating completely. I think that you can have, you know, good streaks... You know, maybe it's two months, maybe it's six months, maybe it's three years, and then something triggers you to go on a full-on binge. 
You know, I, I find random situations where I just can't control myself. And I think this, the step to kind of overcome it is be self-aware enough to know what those situations are. And then when it's presented again, you don't fall into the trap. Now, you know, I consider myself you know, a pretty good coach. And I deal with this shit that clients do all the time. So you can only imagine, you know, like I have all the tools. I take the time to read whatever Precision Nutrition is coming out with, read what Georgie Fear is talking about uh, on nutrition and habits, or listening to Stephen Ledbetter about motivational science and behavior change. Like I have all the tools. So now imagine a client or a regular person trying to lose weight dealing with binge eating like they're up against everything if i am having a hard time dealing with this imagine a regular person so for all the people out there struggling with food struggling with binge eating emotional eating anorexia whatever it is just know that as long as you take small steps towards recovery you're doing okay like it's not gonna be a linear path right like you're not gonna like wake up tomorrow and be like okay i'm gonna stop binge eating today it's gonna take some time and then you're like i said earlier like you could good you can go really really well for three months and then out of nowhere you get invited to a birthday party and you go downtown and get super hammered and then you're walking down the street to mcdonald's and just devouring like 30 chicken nuggets it's gonna happen but the key is that the next time that happens when you find yourself in that situation you want to be able to snap yourself out of the habit of i'm gonna be drinking tonight i don't really care what's gonna happen and we are definitely going to go eat some greasy food after. So if you can catch yourself in that pathway and like snap out of it, again, easier said than done, you will be successful at beating this thing until the next episode. You know, I personally have never dealt with alcoholism, but I would assume and any of you listening that dealt with this or know somebody, you know, a recovering alcoholic, if he or she's around alcohol with other people, you know, they probably have that sense of like, I need to do that again. Or maybe they have the tools necessary to stop that path from triggering a response in their brain to just go grab a drink and everything goes downhill from there. So I think binge eating is one of those things where if you can catch yourself fast enough and stop the behavior about to start again, I think that's kind of the way. And I'm going to try the best to my ability to do so. And um, I'll let you guys know how it goes. If I still can't beat this thing and get over it, I will definitely, well, I'm still going to, but I am going to definitely look for a therapist to figure my shit out because there's probably a lot of different layers 
to the reason why I do the things I do. So hopefully this kind of gave you some insight, hopefully um, gave you some hope or just, you know, it was something you just needed to listen to. But uh, I'm gonna end it there because I wanna go lift some heavy shit at the gym. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, chat some more later this week and I'll post another interview this week and uh, let's leave it at that. If you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, let me know. Uh, share this podcast, please, 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 please. Share this podcast with your friends and family. And let me grow this thing as big as possible to help as many people as possible in the world dealing with shit like this. Until next week, you guys, that's it. Um, we're going to chat about binge eating and I've brought this whole um, topic up before on my show a couple times and it's something that always reoccurs and pops up on my radar because I have a lot of people that will ask me my opinion on the topic as they know or have seen posts that I've uh, put up about binge eating or the fact that I've had my own issues with binge eating in the past not so much now um, but I think the big thing that I wanted to bring up is like if you look at the history of humankind and we go back way 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 back to when we were categorized as homo sapiens when you know you we would go out to the forests and hunt and gather whatever we could for food to survive. We had this natural instinct that say you saw a delicious fig tree and no animal or other human being has touched it yet. You will for sure in that present moment eat as much as possible to ensure that no animal would come by and you know tear that tree to bits and eat everything and have you starve for another day or however long it's been since you last ate so inherently we have this like thing in our subconscious that when we see food that is delicious and we haven't had it in a long time we naturally want to instinctively eat as much as possible to into a point where we're stuffed to ensure that we get our fill and I think and again this is just all personal opinion but it makes sense to me that you know our ancestors used to do that for survival and now we have that same DNA this coded message in our brain that when we see foods that don't normally pop up on our radar that are delicious sweet salty savory whatever it is we have this tendency just to devour as much as possible because who knows when the next time you're going to walk by and see a delicious fig tree filled and no one has touched it yet now that worked really great to survive because you know, probably the next day you're not going to see another, you know, fig tree with that much um, food on it. So it might be a couple days before you eat 
that um, kind of a big of a feast. And with the daily caloric deficit you would have from not eating and also being active, our Homo sapien ancestors probably were able to binge and have no, you know, shitty side effects as we do nowadays and stay overweight and unhealthy. So that being said, we are fighting like human nature not to binge and no wonder how fucking hard it is to stop binge eating, especially when we have food in abundance. Like literally you can go on your phone and order food from your favorite restaurant and have some other person deliver it to you and you can eat as much as possible. Like you can literally go through a drive-through and order like $50 worth of food that most people wouldn't even be able to finish. But you can just like go to town on that thing. It's so easily accessible. And now let's throw in some more environmental stressors that, you know, our homo sapien ancestors didn't have other than like, holy shit, there's a leopard in, right in front of me now, I've got to run for my fucking life. And that just magnifies your tendency to binge. Like, we have everything against us in this world today when it comes to food and controlling our food intake and we wonder why weight loss is so difficult right it's just interesting to me that this was encoded in our brain deep deep inside that when we see delicious food we just have this tendency to overeat and I think if we can acknowledge that it's just part of our human nature to do something like that that's when we can kind of get a little bit more self-control. And literally, this is what I've done for myself when dealing with binge eating, right? First step is just awareness. Like, accept the fact that you do this and then try to find the reason why you keep doing this. I think a lot of times people overthink this whole binge eating thing because they one, don't take time to reflect on it. And literally, that's the only thing you need to do. Like literally sit down and ask yourself, why do I binge eat? And see what you can come up with for answers. Sometimes it can be really simple. Sometimes it'll take you a couple hours to get into the deep root cause. Because really, how often in your day, in the, say in the last month, have you sat down with no interruption of, your phone, your laptop, your TV, or any work or anything else, and you just sat there with your own thoughts and pondered whatever came through your head. I'm pretty sure everyone listening right now has not done this. And I've, fuck, I don't even remember the last time I've done it. Because I'm constantly doing shit, stimulating my brain. I maybe do that like the 30 seconds before I fall asleep really hard before the next day (laughs) like that's probably the only time I do that and that's where the magic happens and this is why most people will go to a counselor a therapist and they ask the questions that make you think we can ask those same questions as long as we're open 
to taking time for ourselves and realizing how crucial that is to our mental health. You know, this whole food thing in general, when it comes to people trying to lose weight, is connected to such a deeper level than what we think. A lot of people think this whole weight loss and fat loss thing is such a superficial thing, but in reality, it is so deep-rooted into our very soul that if you don't work on the shit that goes inside your brain, it's never going to change. So I think my challenge to everyone listening that's battling with you know, emotional eating, binge eating, just weight loss in general, take a second to actually sit down and be with yourself, be in your conscious self and start asking the right questions. I know it's a very broad thing that I just brought up, but that's honestly, I think, the key to this, like the acceptance of what's going on with your life. And you're the only thing in this world where you can control. Everything else, the exterior of what's happening to you, you have no control over. But what goes on inside your head is the one thing you can control. When we lose sight of that, we lose all of our influence on the external world that we're in. So I'm going to end it there because I feel like that was a good place to end it. Um, I went really, really deep on this one. And I love podcast episodes like that where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to talk about binge eating, put some steps together. But no, I just go right into it. So I'm going to finish there. Hopefully this was helpful and eye-opening. I love you guys for always supporting me. Um, Hit the show notes of this podcast episode. Add me on Facebook. Add me on Instagram because I post a lot of video and picture and written stuff that you don't get to see because you're either listening or watching me uh, talk. Um, Thank you guys. You guys are amazing. Until next time.